Semtian champions on YouTube, the Jew Conjugs on Lightning, a top In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many paths of the fields, the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path of omniscience, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect, oh Manjushri, please accomplish this. Just like the six ornaments and two supreme ones who beautify our world, you were their equal in your mastery of compassion, learning, and realization, yet you practice in, in the forest and sacred solitude, Longchenpa, who perfected samsara, nirvana, and the state of Dharmakaya, Trina, is there stainless light at your feet, I pray, grant your blessing, so I may realize the true nature of mind. Hey, good evening. Nice to see you all, at least those of you who we can see. Everybody doing okay? So tonight we start on uh, page 149, and we begin on the, uh, we're going through, starting to go through the Bodhisattva approach to enlightenment, the path of the Bodhisattva by Longchenpa. And it begins with, well, he says it has three parts, the nature of the spiritual potential, by which he means Buddha nature, or uh, the translator has translated that as Buddha nature as uh, spiritual potential. That is the basis for the path, the method by which someone with this spiritual potential arouses bodhicitta, or awakening mind, and how the stages of the path are traversed according to that method. So tonight we do the section on the spiritual potential. It begins with a quote, which are the cluster of stems states, O heirs to the victorious ones, what is termed Buddha nature for those of the Bodhisattva family refers to their firm intention to realize the basic space of phenomena, spacious like the sky, utterly lucid by nature. Bodhisattvas who abide in full awareness of their potential, of that potential, take birth in the family of Buddhas, transcendent and accomplished conquerors of the past, present, and future. 
So we see already uh, uh, sort of coming together of what the Buddha nature and the Bodhicitta are. Buddha nature is spiritual potential. For those of the Bodhisattva family, refers to their firm intention to realize the basic space of phenomena, Dharma, Dharma Dhatu, um, which is usually what the way Bodhicitta is characterized. So let's see if he clarifies that. I think when we get to the Bodhicitta section, I'll become clearer the distinction according to the highest continuum. So the highest continuum as the translation of the Sanskrit Uttara Tantra. Tantra is a continuum, actually. And uh, when it's used in the sense of Tantra, Tantric teachings, as in the third yana or Vajrayana, it means the continuum of ground path and fruition. They're not separate, disjointed entities that are linked together, but they are one continuous entity. And Uttara means uh, highest, without equal. And this is the short name of the Mahayana, Uttara, Tantra, Shastra. Uh, Shastra meaning the commentary on the sutras, and it's by Maitreya one of the so-called five dharmas of Maitreya, meaning the five texts composed by Maitreya, which he bestowed upon a sangha. They spent uh, some time together in the Vishita Pure Land. And um, the main source text that uh, brings together all the teachings on Buddha nature, Tathagata to to Garbha, and a comprehensive manner. So you'll see that he'll quote extensively from this text throughout the chapter and a commentary on the text. And um, there's a commentary by Sangha. I think that's the commentary he's referring to. And um, many other places, teachers, when talking about this topic, will refer to the Uttara Tantra. A lot of very famous lines. Anyway, that which is the utterly lucid nature of mind is unchanging like space. Buddha nature, the utterly lucid nature of mind. The basic space completely pure by nature is ultimate truth. Naturally occurring timeless awareness. Talking about the uh, indivisibility of the perceiver and the perceived, non-dual. Its nature is such that when it is associated with distortions, it's called spiritual potential, as in beings like us, fundamental being or Buddha nature, whereas when it is uh, free of distortions, it is called enlightenment or the state of having gone to suchness. To a definitive understanding of this, there are four points to consider the nature of the spiritual potential, its omnipresence, a detailed analysis of it, and the rationale for relying upon it. And um, remembering, actually, I think spiritual potential is a translation of uh, Gotra. Um, 
notes here. He gave Buddha nature as a separate term. Uh, note 16. Yeah, spiritual potential is a translation of Rick, as in Derek Rick, and uh, in Tibetan, Gocha in Sanskrit, literally family or type. So uh, it's this odd idea that you possess the, 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 the uh, you're part of the family, sort of like in the mafia when you've been made. Now you're part of the family. Nothing better than that. Derek. Yes, ma'am. So is so. How does at first he says spiritual potential on. Footnote 58, he calls it Buddha nature. And then later, Gotra. Are they... Uh, I can't quite connect those dots. Uh, although... On 58, footnote 58, in the back on page 436, he says it's a translation of Rick. Rick. And then he, it's a synonym for Buddha nature. Yeah. Right, so Buddha nature would be Tathagata to Garbha. So, um, but Gotra is, has, is more belonging to a family. It means you possess the potential. The potential. It, so, uh, are you familiar with the term that Trump Rinpoche uses in presenting this? Anyone remember what he calls it? Rand, what kind of pants are you wearing tonight? You're, you're muted. Oh, what, what was the question? What kind of pants are you wearing tonight? They're like sweatpants, athletic pants. Uh, Brock, what kind of pants do you wear tonight? Plaid. No. <laughs> Jeans. There you go. Jeans. Enlightened. Jeans, right. Mm -hmm. Enlightened jeans. Enlightened mm -hmm. jeans. And so initially, when the Mahayana developed, there was this idea that only some people have enlightened genes. And then uh, gradually the idea dawned that everybody has enlightened genes. Why discriminate? So be inclusive. Non-discriminatory policy became uh, uh, equal opportunity path. Gotra, it's a funny term. It's it's like this idea that uh, it, it comes from like the the I don't know this the uh, royal lineage, the idea of royal lineages or something, where it's like, oh, you're a member of the lineage of the nobles, the, the nobility, or something like that. Um, I don't know. It's it's a interesting term. Anyway. Um, Uh, to come to a definitive understanding of this, there's four points. So first, the nature of spiritual potential, or gotra. In the highest continuum, we read, there is nothing whatsoever to remove from this, nor anything in the slightest to add. Perfect, just as you are. 
Isn't there a famous saying, you're perfect just as you are, but... I was just going to say Mr. Rogers. But you could use a little practice or something. You could use a little... No, he, perfect, I he says, you're perfect, <laughs> I love you, now change. That's the, I think that's the quote. That wasn't Mr. Rogers, though. No, no, that was someone else. Mr. Rogers, is uh, you're perfect as you are, I love you. Who else could... It's get what's inside, it counts. <laughs> Who else could get away with saying that and not get arrested? Huh? Look to what is true in itself. If what is true is seen, that is total freedom. If what is true is seen, that is total freedom. What are we looking at? What are we talking about? If uh, what is true is seen. Nature of reality. Essentially, basic space, the nature of reality, the hard essence of being, has never had any distortions to be removed because it is by nature utterly lucid, utterly lucid, clear, knowable, and without distortions, perfect. The qualities of enlightenment also are spontaneously present. And so it is not that these qualities never existed previously and are attained, i.e. through the path of something new. Same source, i.e. the highest continuum, says because it is pure, yet associated with afflictive states or afflictions, because it is pure and entirely without afflictions. Contradiction, contradictory nature. Can you hold a contradiction, contradictory statement in your mind at the same time? Two contradictory aspects of the same thing, because it is indivisible, because it is spontaneously present and completely non-conceptual. Anyway, the authentic view lies in the essence of what has ultimate meaning. Once one has perceived it, the ultimate truth, one is free of the adventitious distortions of afflictive states. Afflictive states are what keep us in samsara and what we experience by being kept here in samsara while we're kept here. There's no end to afflictive states. You can have quite an assortment. They're free. Many of them are free. And uh, But adventitious distortions. The distortions are adventitious. They're not inherent. They're just uh, sort of temporary, spurious, which are like an enveloping call. Who looked up the word call? Who knows the word call? Henrietta, thank God. Oh, and Emily, what do you guys come up with? Well, I knew it from cooking. It's like this layer of fat that you put vegetables inside of and cook, and it's very um, seals it in, and it's quite gruesome. So it was a good image. Oof! Wow. I also uh, looked it up, and they were talking about the membrane that's around the fetus. Ooh. Wow. That's removed at birth. Even more appetizing. A song explains this in his commentary on the highest continuum. So he wrote a commentary on it, which will be quoted throughout. With respect to the qualities of Buddhahood, which are without distortion, there's no difference whatsoever between the true nature of phenomena in some earlier state, meaning in the unenlightened state, and that nature of the qualities of Buddhahood, i.e., in any later state. Sort of, uh, as in an enlightened state. As timeless awareness uh, is inseparable from the state of an ordinary being who is subject to all consuming afflictive states. 
So all beings, even those of us that are uh, uh, subject to all consuming afflictive states, have prajna, have wisdom. And it's the same wisdom in the unenlightened state and the enlightened state. These qualities are thus inconceivable to the ordinary mind. In what way are they inconceivable? Because it's contradictory. Pure yet associated with afflictive states, pure and entirely without. Unchanging. Enlightenment, unchanging and yet different. Enlightenment can be described as the state in which previously existing qualities, not newly created ones, have become fully evident. Therefore, from the standpoint of what basic space, the hard essence of being, is in essence, it is devoid of anything that could characterize it as a real entity that stands up under analysis. So it has no real uh, inf uh, nature that can be investigated or analyzed. For that would involve distortions and flaws. Um, it is not, however, devoid of the qualities of enlightenment, for these are timelessly present as its natural attributes. So the basic element, the basic nature, basic space possesses all the Buddha qualities that are timelessly present as its attributes. Yet it's, it, it is devoid of anything that could characterize it as a real entity, as a separate individual entity, having its own essence as what it is. And yet it possesses all the Buddha qualities. How can that be? Although one's fundamental being is devoid of adventitious factors that are characterized as separate from it, it is not devoid of unsurpassable factors that are characterized as inseparable from it. Talking about the basic nature of this, the spiritual potential. Moreover, the commentary on this explains, what does this demonstrate? There's no reason to ask whatsoever for regarding all uh, consuming afflictive states as things to be removed from the fundamental being of the Tathagatas, which is which is innately and totally pure because its nature is such that it is free of adventitious distortions. There is nothing in the slightest to add to it, nothing that is the result of any process of complete refinement because its nature is the pure nature of phenomena, which is indivisible. Thus the source text, i.e. the highest continuum, is stating that Buddha nature is devoid of all the enshrouding overlays of afflictive states, which entail the vision and can be separated from it. They're totally, totally uh, separate things. Although one of them is not a thing, the Buddha nature is not a thing. But it is not devoid of the inconceivable attributes of Buddhahood, which entail no division and cannot be separated from it, which are more numerous than the grains of sand in the bed of the river Ganges. In this way, we understand that we're wise. <laughs> I have a hard time thinking that a Sangha wrote Y is absent from X. Do you think he did that? 
You can say x is devoid of y, for y cannot be perceived to be in accordance with what is actually so. Where y continues to be present, we can say y is constantly present in x, where it is understood to be actually so, just as it is. These two stanzas demonstrate the characteristic of emptiness, which is impeccable. Just like the warrior and Don Juan's literature, and that there is freedom from the extremes of exaggeration and denigration. Exaggeration and denigration are not like what happens um, with people that are racist necessarily. We're not talking about that, but we're talking about exaggeration and denigration on um, the two extremes of nihilism and eternalism. So exaggeration is eternalism. It's thinking that things have some real nature, that phenomena exist in some way or another. And that has many different uh, varieties. And uh, as we saw in the different tenant systems of the Buddhist schools, there was a number of flavors in that scheme. And then denigration is nihilism, saying that things utterly are non-existent and that cause and effect doesn't operate. So the middle way of the Buddha is the middle way between exaggeration and denigration. Sometimes these are called, translated as superimposition and uh, denigration. You wonder how a spiritual potential such as this is associated with the phenomena of samsara nirvana. You should understand the following. Its relationship to the phenomena of samsara is that of something obscured to what obscures it. So the basic nature is something that is obscured and the defilements are what obscures it. Like that of the sun to clouds. The sun is the Buddha nature and the clouds are that which obscures it, the defilements. Its relationship to the phenomena of nirvana is one of essential identity, like that of the sun to its rays. So the Buddha nature is nirvana or is the manifestation of nirvana, the rays of nirvana, the radiation. Once the phenomena of samsara and their attendant distortions are supported within the support of basic space, and the translator puts support in quotation marks. I don't think Tibetan has quotation marks, but uh, the idea being that to use the term support along with the, the, the element of space is a little bit of a uh, figure of speech was sort of a stretch of the imagination are eliminated at a certain point by means of antidotes this process results in the phenomenon of nirvana becoming fully evident so there's no change in the basic nature the potential the buddha nature there's only a change in the, that which obscures it this continuum indicates that the phenomenon of samsara adventitious Whereas the qualities of enlightenment are present such that they are timelessly uncompacted. Just a side footnote, this text and this, this, this point that's being made over and over again of the basic nature as being um, inseparable from the essence of reality and uh, the defilements as being separable is the precursor of the Gentil, other emptiness tradition, uh, famous in the Tibetan tradition, as being uh, 
the ultimate way of understanding the true nature of phenomena, or Madhyamaka, the middle way, according to certain schools within the Tibetan tradition. That uh, other emptiness, meaning that the, the uh, nature of reality is empty of everything that's other than it. The basic nature, the, the, the true nature of reality is Buddha nature, and it's empty of everything that's other than Buddha nature, meaning all the advent. It's empty of the adventitious defilements. The adventitious defilements have no inherent existence. And the Buddha nature exists, but not in the way of uh, the way normal things exist. It has a transcendent existence. So, if you don't like the the rules of the logical system that's been presented to you, you change them. And you create an entity that is capable of eluding the definitions of things that you're trying to negate in the earlier Madhyamaka systems. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Um, our presence such that they're timelessly uncompounded I think timelessly means like classes out of time or always because it's associated with adventitious faults yet it's innately imbued with the qualities of enlightenment. This is, this is one of the most famous lines. As it was before, so it is afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning the basic nature. As it was before, so it is afterwards. Doesn't that all timeless mean unborn? Isn't that why sometimes they say unborn? Well, that's another one of the ways of describing it. You know, there's basically unborn, unchanging, uh, and then unending. You know, when you look at it from a chronological point of view, mm -hmm. three of them together make up timelessness. Mm -hmm the unchanging nature of phenomena and the context on the next page of this spiritual potential the basic space of phenomena which like space is without transition or change there is a process whereby for countless lifetimes physical bodies are left behind and taken up again on the basis of karma and habit patterns that perpetuate samsara endlessly the same source describes this process just as all universes originate and disintegrate in space. So the components of experience originate and disintegrate in uncompounded basic space. Derek, um, when I read this, I had the question, like, so would it be fair to say then that basic space or Buddha nature is the quote-unquote thing that would be said to be reincarnated over lifetimes? Is that... That is the implication of that sentence, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, the Buddha nature um, for countless lifetimes uh, takes up different physical bodies that are then left behind and others that are taken up on the basis of karma and habit patterns. You know, it's this, but it's, uh, doesn't make sense. It's contradictory. You know, why, why would it continue to be bound up? Why is Buddha nature 
um, trapped, so to speak, by the defilements. It's, it's unaffected by them. Anyway, that's the great mystery of Buddha nature. Um, Derek? Yeah. But Buddha, I don't think Buddha nature comes and goes through lifetimes. Isn't that like a constant? So it doesn't disintegrate. It doesn't re have rebirth or disintegrate. It's isn't it a continuum, constant, always there. The Buddha nature always where. You know there, <laughs> everywhere. Your Buddha nature is everywhere. It, it does bring yeah, up the, maybe. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Is, is it an individual Buddha nature or is it a general Buddha nature? Basic space. Yeah, it's everywhere. It's inconceivable. It is. Now, you know, now we border on, you know, theism where we say it has an inconceivable nature. You know why is why is your Buddha nature? Why is the do you possess Buddha nature? Yes, there's Buddha nature in your mind stream, but why is it caught up with defilements? How did that happen? How will it happen in the next lifetime? Do you have will you have the same Buddha nature next lifetime, or will it be mine? Do we trade Buddha natures each lifetime? Does it matter? Yeah, these are very thought-provoking questions. <laughs> Interchangeable. Because it does. You no. don't think of it like that, right? You don't think of it as mine. I possess it, right? No. That just seems yeah. wrong to think of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good point. Oh, yeah. I guess it's not yeah. as simple. Moreover, although the components of experience, which the, the footnote said is the Wong pose, the faculties, I mean, in this sense, it refers to the, the larger list of faculties. Usually faculties refers to the, uh, um, the uh, usually faculties refer, or Wong pose refers to the six senses, but here there's this list of 22 faculties in the Abhidharma Kosha. That's referring to. Let's see. Um, moreover, although components of experience, Wang Po, seem to originate and disintegrate as a result of karma and incidental circumstances, one's fundamental being is without origination or cessation, just as space is not incinerated, even though the fire at the end of an aeon incinerates the universe. So, you know, in what way is this different from the soul? That's your homework assignment. <laughs> so let's see. At, at the end of each aeon, uh, the world uh, dissolves. The world is consumed one way or another. Some aeons get destroyed. There's destruction by fire. Some there's destruction by water. Some there's destruction by wind. And uh, there's, there's, uh, they say there's um, s certain things that survive those those destructions. And he's saying that uh, 
space is not incinerated, even though the fire at the end of the aeon incinerates the universe. So the Buddha nature, the implication is that Buddha nature is not incinerated at the end of an aeon. aeon. The same source states, just the space has never been incinerated by flames. Similarly, this spiritual potential is not incinerated by the flames of death, illness, or aging. All births and death, all happiness and suffering come about as a result of karma and afflictive states. These in turn come about as a result of the non-recognition of awareness, which is the cause of the all-consuming and fallacious thought processes of the ordinary mind. There's your second noble truth. What's the cause of suffering? Normally they say, uh, the, in the, the earliest teachings, they say desire. And then in the yes. later teachings, they say karma and afflictions. And uh, here he's saying ignorance, which is really the root of the situation. Thank you, Cynthia. That non-recognition, moreover, sustains within the mind's utterly lucid nature, just as the universe is sustained within space. So that ignorance is supported or sustained within the mind's utterly lucid nature. As this source, the same source states, Earth is based firmly on water. And here's the sort of cosmology of the Buddhist scheme, the Buddhist scheme for cosmology. That uh, Earth is based on water, water on air, and air and space. Space is not based on either, any of them. Space has no basis. It's not supported. Similarly, the mind-body aggregates, components of perception and the faculties, based on karma and afflictive states. Karma and afflictive states are always based on the fallacious, fallacious, fallacious functioning of mind, whereas the fallacious functioning of mind is based entirely on the purity of mind. <laughs> Why would the purity of mind support a fallacious mind? The true nature of mind is not based on any of these factors. The true nature of mind is not based on anything. The qualities of nirvana are innate and abide timelessly like the sun's rays with the sun. They include both manifest aspects such as the kayas, light rays, pure realms, and immeasurable mansions. And qualities of awareness such as strengths and states of fearlessness. This is an interesting statement. So they include both manifest aspects. So there's embodiment kayas, light rays, realms, immeasurable mansions. These are the palaces of deities. This is where Buddhas and so forth live. They, 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 you know, if you're going to manifest as a Buddha, you got to have real estate. So, um, and then there's the, the qualities, strengths, and fearlessnesses. There's like a whole list of fearlessnesses. There's an extensive discussion of these in the Sutra, the Garlands of the Buddhas, of Buddhas, but they're summarized concisely in the commentary and the highest continuum as follows. Oh, let's see. Oh, we, we read this quote. Is there anybody here that didn't do resting in the nature of mind, finding rest in the nature of mind course? You remember this quote? Where if you had like a depiction of the entire universe that was as big as the entire universe. <laughs> what a cool uh, 
idea. You have a painting of something that's as big as the something itself. In this case, it's the universe. <laughs> but then, and I don't remember really this part that, that clearly towards the end, um, on 154, the first full paragraph, <clears throat> suppose that although this enormous piece of, piece of silk cloth was uh, blah, 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 this enormous piece of silk cloth was inserted into one atom. <laughs> These guys have a lot of time on their hands. They come up with amazing scenarios. And uh, just as this enormous piece, piece of silk cloth was inserted into one atom, enormous pieces of silk cloth of the same size were inserted into every atom without exception. And then there appeared someone who was learned, wise, clear-minded, insightful, whose conduct showed her to be imbued with these qualities. She would be clairvoyant with vision like that of the gods, so that everything was utterly clear and pure. She would scrutinize things with that divine vision and see an enormous piece of silk cloth contained within an atom, all the different atoms. So why is there this silk cloth inside all the atoms? <laughs> What's going on here? But, you know, Derek, it reminded me a little bit of sort of fractals, you know, in science. Yeah, yeah. That same concept of... Yeah, or like physics with like, the, you know, the universe in an atom sort of mm -hmm. thing. And uh, they would think, ah! Oh. <laughs> what if someone were to split this atom open? We could power the universe. We could create nuclear fission or fusion or something. I don't know. Clean energy. Oh, so there's a little, little waste that comes off the side. Not a big deal. And uh, they would they would split open the atom using a tiny vajra. <laughs> it's like when you get your eyeglasses and it has like a little tiny screw for this screwdriver, you know. And uh, that would provide support <clears throat> for unlimited beans. Now, I don't know in what way this would support limited, limitless beans, like where they could sit on it or could you sell it and then live off or eat it i don't know but anyway it's yeah. a quote yes ma'am it reminded me of dna like the idea of dna that it's like a map and we all have it and it's really vast right and it's packed in this little capsule yeah but it really at the same time contains every every instruction that creates mary beth and so on for you or anybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so it sustains us. Yeah, that's cool. The double helix. Uh, therefore, with respect to the essence of one's being, the qualities of enlightenment are spontaneously present and has never known any sullying, even by Captain Sully, as a result of flaws, with respect to its expression, it seems to be associated with afflictive states at one time and then purified at a later time. There's no contradiction between its purity on the one hand and impurity on the other. It is inconceivable to the ordinary mind. Just put together an inconceivable solution to the nature of reality and 
say to anybody that can't understand it, well, you have an ordinary mind, you can't understand it. This is inconceivable to someone with an ordinary mind like yours. Same commentary says, as for suchness that is still associated with distortion, that one at the same time is both completely pure and associated with all consuming afflictive states, and so the state is inconceivable to the ordinary mind. As for suchness without distortions, it is not that distortions have made it an all consuming afflictive state at some prior point, and that it later becomes totally pure, and so this state is inconceivable to the ordinary mind. It's not the ordinary, ordinary mind. It's the ordinary, ordinary mind. The omnipresence of spiritual potential. Omnipresence, omnipotence. My discussion of the omnipresence of spiritual potential has three aspects. How spiritual potential is omnipresent, its indications and its qualities with regard to its omnipresent nature. The sutra, Queen Shamala, which is one of the cooler sutras. If you want to read a, a, a very interesting Mahayana Sutra, the first one you should read is the Malakirti, and the second one would be the Sutra of the Queen Srimala. Very neat. Basically, the whole teaching is by from this queen named Srimala, and it's uh, quite a, a transcendent version of the Four Noble Truths and uh, so forth that you find there. Anyway, she says, and the Buddha then uh, uh, confirms everything she says. Buddha nature permeates absolutely every being, which means even your dog has Buddha nature. According to the eyes continue, because the kaya of perfect Buddhahood is pervasive. And so these are the reasons that all beings attain have Buddha nature. And this is quoted by Gampopa in his jewel ornament at the beginning in his chapter on Buddha nature. So what's the logic for saying all beings have Buddha nature? Well, the logic is because the kaya of perfect Buddhahood is all-pervasive. Buddha kaya or Dharma kaya has no limits. It pervades everywhere. So it doesn't like stop just before some people and not include them and, and include others. It includes all beings in all directions at all times. Secondly, because the state of suchness is indivisible. Likewise, suchness, the true nature of reality, is indivisible with Dharma kaya, and therefore pervades everyone and everything and everywhere. Thirdly, because all beings possess spiritual potential. Now this one is a little bit of a leap. This one says all beings have the potential. You can only prove this if you actually looked at all, every single being, which obviously would be impossible. He said that all beings possess spiritual potential. And, and the rationale is that sentience is equivalent to the potential. The ability to perceive and know, to have a mind, means that you have the potential. And you get into the quandary of like amoeba or amoebae and pen, uh, penicillin or whatever they're called. You know, really small people, I mean creatures. And whether they have minds or not, or whether they're sentient. Do they have Buddha nature? Does a virus have Buddha nature? Therefore, beings are forever endowed with Buddha nature. Indications of spiritual potential. How can you tell if you've got it? Or 
twofold. The same source describes the signs of those who have not yet awakened to the potential, even though they possess it. So first, those who have not given any indication that they have it, even though they do. Uh, those who lack sensitivity to one's fundamental being. They don't know who they are. They're not in touch with themselves. Uh, one's Buddha nature. They're not in touch with their Buddha nature. One will never be sufficiently dissatisfied with suffering. This is one of the main indications of Buddha nature. Is of the presence of, of or recognition of Buddha nature is that we're dissatisfied with life. You know, so often we uh, complain about people that complain all the time. Complaining is a sign of Buddha nature. The wisdom of your Buddha nature that's saying, things shouldn't be this bad. Life doesn't need to suck. And, and so there are some people who don't who don't see that life is suffering. Either their life is too good, they like God realm, or they're just oblivious. Oh, one will never be sufficiently dissatisfied with suffering, nor will they, uh, nor do they ever yearn for nirvana. They have no idea, or they uh, don't think there's a possibility for nirvana. Or strive for it, or even aspire for it. Some very ordinary people are like that. The signs of those who have awakened, on the other hand, to this potential are given as follows from the same source. This per perception of their respective flaws and advantages of the suffering of samsara and the happiness of nirvana is a result of one's sensitivity to this spiritual potential. Why is this? Because these flaws and advantages are not perceived by those who lack such sensitivity. Anyway, these two types of people are mentioned in the Ornament of the Sutras, which is also by Maitreya, Sutra Alamkara, Mahayana Sutra Alamkara, one of his other, one, another one of his five dharmas. Those who have not awakened or are temporarily cut off are described as follows. So what he's uh, addressing now is that in some of the early literature, Mahayana literature that talks about Buddha nature, there literally is the idea that some people are cut off and don't have the potential to become Buddhas. And so then the rest of the Mahayana, later on, the, the, the tradition corrects that fallacious view and then has to constantly, forever, uh, explain away why they made that mistake at the, at the beginning. Some lack the virtue conducive to liberation, deficient in power. Uh, positive factors, they are divorced from its cause. Those who have awakened are referred to in the following way. <clears throat> so here, Longchenpa, by the way, says to go back and sentence, um, those who have not awakened or are temporarily cut off. They're not permanently cut off. They're only temporarily cut off. Back to those who have awakened are referred to in the following way, even before one undertakes training. Uh, those who are, who have awakened their enlightened genes, their potential, are compassionate, they have compassion, they have devoted interest in the welfare of, of themselves and others, and they have patience. 
sort of eliminates me right away. And to pursue virtue authentically. They're interested in virtue. Um, these are explained to be true indications of the presence of spiritual material, uh, potential, not the presence, the sort of awareness of sensitivity, of, as this translator said. Qualities of enlightenment cultivated in the Bodhisattva approach can be shown to be most excellent, for they are far superior to those of the Henyata approach. The same source says, because it causes the tree of enlightenment to grow with abundant qualities because it brings about the attainment of happiness and the subsiding of great suffering, and thirdly, because its fruition ensures the benefit and happiness for oneself and others, that most excellent spiritual potential is like a fine taproot. A fine taproot means your plant is going to succeed. It has a strong, deep root that's going to hold it up and not let the thing fall over like most of my little plants do. Uh, let's see. The word gotra the Sanskrit language of India can be broken down into two parts. Go, which if interpreted to be cognate with guna, implies qualities. Guna is qualities. And tra, which if interpreted to be cognate to tara, implies to liberate. This means that spiritual potential acts as a support for the qualities of liberation or enlightenment, and so brings liberation, leading one by beyond samsara. Therefore, the source text says, as for the qualities, these are to be understood as the ultimate meaning of liberation. Okay, so now let's do a deep dive into this uh, uh, spiritual potential with a detailed analysis. My detailed analysis of this um, is based on three considerations the supporting and supported factors, specific situations, and analogies and their meaning. The supporting and supported factors, the ornament of sutra states, it has naturally abiding and increasingly evident aspects, which are the supporting and supported factors, it being the spiritual potential, both existent and non-existent, and their qualities. These should be understood to be the ultimate meaning of liberation. This verse signifies that the omnipresent and utterly lucid nature referred to <coughs> previously can be explained to be twofold, and that a distinction can be made between its manifestation and its emptiness. Its empty aspect and its manifest aspect. Empty basic space. So I found it um, interesting that he jumps right away into Buddha nature before talking about emptiness. It's, did that, does that seem different from the way the Mahayana... In is, what sense? Where, where well, you... I mean, here he's starting to talk about emptiness, but but I seem to remember talking about empty, you know, learning about emptiness first and then Buddha nature in later stages, more in the Yogacara and later presentations. No? 
didn't we just go through a whole long presentation of emptiness in the tenant section of the book? Ah, I see what you're saying. I think he gave us a pretty good dose of uh, the understanding of the nature of reality is being empty by leading up to it through going through all the different schools and then concluding with the prasangika view as being the ultimate. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. You know, so that was the dose. As you said, uh, you have to understand the empty aspect. Otherwise, you then take the manifest aspect in a theistic way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Very important point. Thank you. So I, I think he probably felt he did a good, good uh, laid the ground for emptiness in the previous section on the tenant systems. Empty basic space is the supporting factor, the cause of disengagement that leads to Dharmakaya as the essence of being itself. Manifest timeless awareness, naturally radiant and entailing the major and minor marks of perfect form, which is a reference to the Sambhogakaya, manifestation of enlightenment that comes replete with a whole series of uh, interesting qualities or aspects known as the major and minor marks that include things like having uh, wheels, lotus lotus wheels, swastikas on the soles of your feet and so forth, webbed fingers so you can swim fast and so forth um, is the supported factor. So empty basic space is the supporting factor, the empty aspect, and the supported aspect is the manifest appearance of Buddha nature as Buddha, the embodiment of the Sambhogakaya, abiding as the two Rubakayas that ensue from this uh, disengagement. So the support is the Dharmakaya, and the supported is the Rubakaya. The highest continuum says, like a treasure trove and a fruit-bearing tree, respectively, the spiritual potential should be understood to have two aspects. The beginningless aspect, which is naturally abiding, and the sublime aspect, which is perfectly developed. Interesting analogy, treasure trove and a fruit-bearing tree. It's held that the three kinds of Buddhahood are attained through this twofold potential emptiness and manifest qualities. Uh, the first kaya through the first aspect and the remaining two through the second. The magnificent swabhavaka kaya, which is the combination of all three, is understood to be like an image made of a precious substance that is by nature uncreated and a treasure trove of invaluable qualities at the same time. That inconceivable nature that possesses these two seemingly opposing aspects and that it has supreme dominion over the preeminent state of being the Sambhogakayas like universal monarch in that they are by nature reflections Nirmanakaya emanations are like images reflected on the surface of gold that is one can analyze the naturally abiding aspect of the spiritual potential and its perfectly developed aspect by distinguishing one as the ground, the empty aspect, Dharmakaya, and the other as the path. 
uh, sorry, that one can analyze the naturally binding aspect of the spiritual potential and its perfectly developed aspect. So the potential is the ground and the developed aspect is the path. Basic space is by nature the ground of being abiding such that it permeates everything. In that context, the aspect of basic space that serves as the ground for the arising of things is analogous to the treasure trove of precious gems in that it abides as the basis for all that can be desired, yet cannot itself be determined to be anything at all. Given that this is so basic space, dharmakaya, as the essence of being itself can be considered from the standpoint of providing an open avenue for the arising of the kayas and timeless awareness. On the other hand, the arising manifest aspect of that timeless awareness is that of pure awareness and the kayas. It can be described as being analogous to the uh, flourishing fruit-bearing tree simply in that the qualities of enlightenment inherent within one are certain to become evident on the strength of one's being freed from our circumstantial obscurations. This is a matter of using the name of what results from purification to label what causes purification. Uh, as the ornament of Sutra explains by means of analogies to gold and the finest jewel. They have a whole way of classifying the different names that phenomena have based on uh, their qualities or as, as you see in this case, they, they sort of liked this case where something is called something on the basis of uh, the, the name of what results from purification to label what causes it. Uh, labeling the cause with the name of the fruit. Anyway, let, let me digress briefly explain these aspects in the context of training on the path. Both aspects of spiritual potential as basic space, being spontaneously present by nature, are implied by what is called naturally abiding spiritual potential. So let's see, both qualities of basic space, meaning uh, so the two qualities are it's all pervasive ground of everything and this aspect that serves as the basis for the arising of everything. Those two aspects, being spontaneously present by nature, are implied by what is called naturally abiding spiritual potential. And that they abide is the supporting factor. On that basis, all of the fundamentally positive factors included in the two kinds of spiritual development, those of merits, and the experience of timeless awareness of merit and wisdom from the first moment that one arouses bodhicitta up to the very threshold of complete enlightenment on the 10th spiritual level are termed the perfectly developed aspect or the increasingly evident aspect of this potential. So these two qualities of Buddha potential or Buddha nature, uh, it, it's the, the uh, dormant or uh, sort of unchanging basic space of Buddha nature, of uh, reality, and it's that which develops and matures and blossoms throughout the, the progression of the path. The latter two terms, <clears throat> which were uh, the perfectly developed aspect or the increasingly evident aspect, 
signify that the qualities of enlightenment, which are in fact inherent in the Buddha nature and the, and the spiritual potential from the beginning, seem to come into being as something new because the above-mentioned positive factors are newly applied as antidotes, and on the strength of this, the distortions that overlie what's natural spiritual potential are eliminated. So that the, uh, the factors, the, the qualities of enlightenment of Buddhahood do not come into being newly. They're not produced. They're not caused. But um, he says they're, they're new, the, uh, the above-mentioned positive factors are newly applied as antidotes. By applying what is already there as antidotes to what obscures, then the obscurations are cleared away. The distortions that overlie one's potential are eliminated. It's an interesting sort of way of uh, uh, fudging the explanation of like, so how does this thing develop? How does it change? How does that which is changeless change or seem to change? Well, it doesn't really change, but what, what obscures it changes? Well, what makes that change? Why, does there, why is there any change if it's all changeless? And he says, well, there's the application of those spiritual qualities in a new way. How did that come about? Sort of the chicken and the egg type of thing. Anyway, these days there's a failure to take the two foregoing aspects of spiritual potential into account in considering the ground of being. Instead, the ground is classified as suchness itself and the path as the increasingly evident aspect. It seems to me indicative of a failure to understand basic space um, <clears throat> because such a classification fails to appreciate the unity of what is manifest in its emptiness that is spontaneously present within the ground of being. So he's uh, talking about others who uh, understand things in an erroneous manner. Let's see that the footnote 87 says, on the bottom of uh, page 158, is a failure to take the two foregoing aspects of spiritual potential into account, considering the ground of being. The failure to understand that both aspects, the supporting and the supported, are present in the ground of being, is a failure to understand that. And the footnote says that is the base, the aspect of naturally abiding spiritual potential or basic space, which corresponds to the Dharmakaya, and that of perfectly developed or increasingly evident spiritual potential, which is the manifest aspect corresponding to the Kaya's and timeless awarenesses. So that's what's um, misunderstood um, when when some other he's talking about. You know, people like Bhutan, probably, teachers of other traditions who lived at the same time. Anyway, back on 159, he quotes again from the Ornament of the Sutras, although there's no difference between some earlier state and any later one, suchness has become pure. It's contradictory from the ordinary logical point of view. 
that although there's no change, there's a purification. According to the highest continuum, uncompounded, it's spontaneously present, i.e., that's the Buddha nature of the potential. It is not realized through the agency of anyone or anything other anything else other than itself. It is endowed with wisdom, love, and energy, usually power. Wisdom, love, and power, the three qualities of Buddhahood. This is Buddhahood itself, which embodies the two kinds of benefit from oneself and others. These quotations indicate that because Buddhahood is timelessly and spontaneously present, it is not achieved through a causal process that involves something being developed and something developing it, but through a causal process that involves disengagement. This is a fine point, a sort of subtle way of trying to explain how enlightenment comes about without uh, it being produced. So there's nothing newly produced in enlightenment. It's just that the enlightened nature becomes disentangled with unenlightened qualities of defilements and distortions and so forth. So uh, Buddhahood, the, the process of enlightenment is described as an abandoning of obscurations as opposed to a building up of positive qualities. Uh, let's see, given these two aspects of spiritual potential, Buddhahood should be understood to be the timeless endowment of the three kayas. That is, on the level of Buddhahood, the increasingly evident or manifest aspect of that potential corresponds to Sambhogu Kaya, whereas the naturally abiding or empty aspect corresponds to Dharmakaya. The blessings that result from the inseparability of these two aspects bring about the appearance of Nirmanakaya manifestations in the perceptions of ordinary beings according to those beings' individual good fortune. So there's the Dharmakaya, the empty aspect, and the Sambhogakaya, the, uh, the presence or manifestation of all the qualities of Buddhahood. And together, what did I say? The blessings that result from the inseparability of these two aspects bring about the appearance of Nirmanakaya manifestations according to those beings' individual good fortune. So if beings have the good fortune to see <coughs> Nirmanakaya because of the blessings that have been uh, accumulated over the time of progressing on the path to Buddhahood, that momentum of the bodhisattva attitude then creates blessings which are um, activated by the good fortune of those who are able to uh, see the nirmanakaya, experience the nirmanakaya. And thus you have, boom, Shakyamuni is born. Thus, this is analogous to the form of universal monarch appearing in the sky and being reflected on the slopes of a mountain of gold. Must, uh, it must be a reference to something. Specific situations. Uh, we're getting even more down to the particular here. Um, spiritual potential can be analyzed in light of three specific situations. The impure situation, spiritual potential with respect to ordinary beings, the transitional situation, 
from impure to pure, spiritual potential with respect to bodhisattvas on the paths, and the utterly pure situation, spiritual potential of fundamental being with respect to targetas. The fact that on the level of Buddhahood there is freedom from distortions is antithetical to its entailing any spiritual potential or fundamental being in the true sense of these terms. However, there's nothing wrong with applying these labels. Just on a sort of uh, uh, conventional or <coughs> uh, provisional basis. The quote is the fundamental being that is Buddhahood, the enlightenment of Buddhahood, uh, which is what he's referring to in that um, statement about just a, a way of using terms. With respect to these three situations, the same sort states, these situations in pure, transitional, and utterly pure are respectively described as those of ordinary bodhisattva and tathagata beings. The commentary says, thus it is in the impure situation, the uh, fundamental being of ordinary beings is used in the transitional, we say bodhisattvas, and the utterly pure tathagata. Alternatively, spiritual potential is threefold with respect to these three spiritual approaches. It can also be classified in 13 ways with respect to specific stages of spiritual development as well as in other ways. So it can be classified in numerous ways, the, the uh, spiritual potential, according to the stages of development of pure, transitional, impure, transitional, and pure. Um, the single basic space that is mind itself, spiritual potential in the ultimate sense, is pervasive for it is omnipresent without any gradation of better or worse. Nevertheless, spiritual potential can be expediently referred to by different terms according to the categories of different spiritual approaches as well as to those of the range of higher and lower spiritual levels and paths. So you can talk about it in different ways. In the same way, the name of a single container can change depending upon what is poured in it. Uh, skipping the quote, spiritual potential is utterly lucid basic space. Utterly lucid basic space. Uh, abides in all who manifest as ordinary beings, high or low, or spiritually advanced beings, high and low. In this context, it's present without any gradation in its, of its essence into better or worse, etc. It's similar, for example, to the fact that although clay pots, wooden bowls, and vessels of precious metals and stones appear to have different qualities, there's no difference in the quality of the space that these vessels hold. Uh, let's see, just the space which epitomizes a non-conceptual state expands everywhere, so the true nature of mind, based in space without distortion, is omnipresent in general characteristics. Uh, its general characteristics is that it permeates things, including both false and positive qualities, to the utmost extent, completely, thoroughly, which is similar to space permeating specific forms, whether inferior, mediocre, or sublime. The seeming distinction between better and worse is based on whether or not there is freedom from distortions. Blinded by the sheer density of their observation, the ordinary beings display no more than the merest hint of the qualities of enlightenment, like me. Um, Arhats and Pratyeka Buddhas for whom these distortions have diminished are more advanced in their qualities and bodhisattvas who have progressed further on the levels 
manifests these qualities in more advanced ways. Buddhists free of all obscurations and uh, manifest them completely. According to this paradigm, it can be positive that there's no nirvana in the true sense of the word for arhats and uh, only a mere respite from the suffering of samsara. Again, uh, the effort to, to uh, prove logically that arhats of uh, Shravakas and Pradyeka Buddhas do not uh, achieve a, a permanent salvation, a permanent state of enlightenment, but only experience a transitional, temporary state of cessation from which they are then woken up and so forth. We've seen that before. So let's skip the quote analogies and their meaning. Finally, I know you were all waiting to get to this part. My analysis of spiritual potential based on analogies and their meaning has three aspects. Presenting these analogies and their meaning in detail, correlating them and demonstrating the nature of the heart essence of being. So here he goes to this, this famous compilation of analogies that is uh, put together in the Uttara Tantra. Uh, and uh, by having called them out of other Buddha nature sutras of the Buddha. Detailed presentation. One of the treatises concerned with correctly interpreting the definitive meaning of the final series of teachings spoken by the Buddha. So, Longchenpa just told us that he considers the third turning of the wheel of the Dharma, the final series of teachings spoken by the Buddha, to be of definitive meaning which is not universal throughout Tibetan Buddhism. Many Tibetan Buddhists hold that the second turning, the Prajnaparamita Sutras, is the definitive meaning, and that the third turning is uh, provisional, but he's of the, uh, the uh, different state of mind. In praise of the basic space of phenomena, um, Who's that by that? Buddha, I guess. So here's some uh, the analogies. This is the essence of butter is not evident when it's still milk, uh, when it's still mixed with milk. So the basic space of phenomena is not perceived when mixed with afflictive states. And let's see. I'm going to sort of mix in his uh, analysis, what he called his uh, correlation. So he says of this one that the distortions present in the minds of ordinary beings who have not yet entered the path are karmic patterns, meritorious and otherwise that serve only to perpetuate samsara. This is the essence of uh, butter is not evident when it is still mixed with milk, so the basic space of phenomena is not perceived when mixed with afflictive states. So that's the uh, beings that are hopelessly lost in their karmic patterns, clashes, and uh, thereby samsara. Secondly, just as the essence of butter becomes flawless through the refining away of the other ingredients of milk, so the basic space of phenomena becomes utterly undistorted through the refining away of afflictive states. Oh, just as a lamp inside a vase is not 
visible in the slightest of the basic space of phenomena is not perceived inside the vase of afflictive states. When an opening in the vase is oriented toward the place where one sits, the radiance, the nature of the lamp, will be cast in that specific direction. Similarly, when the vajra of meditative absorption shudders the vase of afflictive states, at that point the light will illuminate all of space to its furthest limits, just as when a rare jewel while remaining utterly clear at all times is embedded in rock, its utter clarity is not evident. So when obscured by afflictive states, even the basic space of phenomena completely free of distortions does not evince its utter lucidity and samsara, and evinces this lucidity in nirvana. When the element of gold is present through one's efforts, one will perceive pure gold, but if one lacks sensitivity to one's fundamental beings, one's efforts will create nothing but afflictive states. If you're not in, in tune with the qualities of, uh, of your of spiritual potential, just as a ripened grain is not evident when covered by a husk, so there's nothing evident called Buddhahood when there is the overlay of afflictive states. Just as the grain becomes evident when free of the husk, so Dharmakai itself becomes utterly evident when free of afflictive states. Although the plantain tree is a common analogy in the world for what is nothing at its core, its fruit, its quintessence is eaten as a delicacy. Similarly, although samsara has nothing at its core, once one is free of the caves of afflictive states, the fruit of this perfect Buddhahood, sorry, Buddhahood itself becomes nectar for all beings. So, um, I guess a, a series of couplets to two verses that are sort of before and after. This passage contains six analogies and employing the images of butter, lamb, gem, gold, grain, fruit of a tree, respectively, which illustrate the three situations of ground, path, and fruition. Maitreya, on the other hand, presents nine analogies in the highest continuum. The first is that of a statue of a Buddha enclosed in a lotus bud. <clears throat> so, uh, Longchenpa's analysis of these uh, follows later. That's what I mistakenly applied to this to that former section. My apologies, but his analysis applies to this. So, the Tathagata radiant with a thousand characteristics, but enclosed in a decaying lotus would be seen by a person with flawless clairvoyance and taken out of the bud of the waterborne lotus. Similarly, with the vision of a Buddha, a Sugata sees the true nature of even those dwelling in the hell of endless torment, the lowest of low. Out of compassion, one who dwells at the furthest limit of unobscured being, a Buddha, frees those who are caught up in the obstructions of believing that things exist or have identity. That's what uh, Well, let's go through the analogies first, the way he does. Second is that of a bee's honey. Uh, when honey is surrounded by swarming bees, the wise person who, having seen it, is motivated to obtain it uses skillful means to remove it entirely from the swarm. Similarly, with omniscient vision, the great seers perceive this spiritual potential fundamental being, which is like the honey, and cause what obscures it, which is like the bees, to be forever and utterly left behind. It's quite a delicate, op delicate operation, removing a... a um, the honey 
from a swarm of bees. The third is that of ripened grains still covered by their husks. People cannot enjoy ripened grains encased in husks, but anyone who wants to eat or otherwise use them can remove them from the husks. Similar, so long as what is victorious mixed with the distortions of the afflictive states of ordinary beings is not freed from this association with the distortions of afflictive states, the enlightened deeds of victorious ones will not affect those in the three realms of conditioned existence. Anyway, so he goes through all of these uh, analogies, wonderful analogies, and then he sums them up uh, on page 166. Maybe we'll just go through that together. These nine analogies describe the hard essence of being from the standpoint of nine ways in which its nature can be obscured. Generally speaking, these analogies refer to fundamental being as, as it is present in unenlightened individuals. More specifically, the distortions present in the minds of ordinary beings have not yet entered the path or karmic patterns, meritorious and otherwise that serve only to perpetuate samsara glacier ridden patterns. The four analogies implied, sorry, employed the first four analogies of from among the nine that employ the images of a lotus where there was a decaying, decaying lotus with a hidden uh, a tatagata hidden inside, the uh, bees and the honey, and a grain husk hidden inside, a grain hidden in the husk, and a swamp. There was a Buddha statue uh, that somehow got lost in a swamp, or, sorry, gold that got buried in a swamp. And uh, let's see, illustrate four deeply ingrained and powerful patterns. Desire is the first one. The lotus aversion, the bees delusion, the grain husk covered over, delusion covered over, and a combination of all three in equal measure is the swamp, the swamp of samsara, the swamp of the glaciers, right? Uh, the single analogy of a poor man's treasure buried in the earth. So not knowing that there's a great treasure buried underneath uh, a poor man's house is uh, illustrates the hard essence of being whose nature is obscured by the habit patterns of ignorance present in the minds of Arhats, even. The two analogies employing the images of a hull and rags, respectively, illustrate two kinds of distortions. Let's see. Uh, is that of a seed of a tree within its hull? The fruit of a mango or some other tree has a seed within it, destructible nature. So the idea of seeds and uh, firmly encased inside a strong hull or a nut, let's say. And uh, rags, a treasure hidden in rags, dirty rags, a jeweled statue wrapped in rags. Um, These two illustrate respectively two kinds of distortions, those that are present in the minds of ordinary beings training on the path, and those and that are to be eliminated through the path of seeing. So there's two types of obs obscurations to enlighten those that are eliminated on the path of seeing, at the moment of the path of seeing, which is 
variously described as the fixation on the uh, um, existence of the self of persons, on the path of seeing, and then on the path of meditation and the self of phenomena. Those that are present in the minds of spiritually advanced beings and that are to be eliminated through the path of meditation is the uh, treasure hidden in rags. Two analogies of a ruler gestating in a womb, un unidentified, in a, a poor woman's womb, and the clay mold that encases a gold statue. Um, illustrate distortions affecting those in the 10th spiritual levels. On the first seven of the Bhumis, which are called the impure Bhumis, because they're still uh, afflicted with uh, the distortions of experiencing duality and the karmic momentum of the experience of dualistic cognition, even though one has uprooted the fixation on the true existence of reality of anything real, one still has the habit patterns of dualistic perception. On the impure boomies, one is still generating additional karmic momentum of the uh, of that habit pattern of dualistic perception. And then on the three pure levels, eight, nine, and ten boomies, one no longer generates additional karmic momentum of uh, dualistic perception and instead wears out the residue of that karmic uh, momentum of dualistic perception. And so therefore they're called pure boomies. And that was the uh, clay mold encasing a gold statue. As I said, the deeply ingrained powerful habit patterns caused by attachment, aversion, and delusion, as well as the factors to be eliminated path of seeing meditation, those pertaining to impure and pure spiritual levels. These nine kinds of distortions are illustrated by the analogies of this lotus bud and so forth. The shell of derivative afflictive states can be analyzed as countless millions of variations. So this is just one of, you know, millions of different ways that you can analyze the different types and stages of uh, the encasement of the spiritual potential within the afflictions of the, the uh, temporary defilements. Correlating the analogies with their meanings, now I will explain the meaning of these nine analogies by illustrating flaws they are meant to help one understand the veils of the nine kinds of distortions or factors. Uh, they are meant to help one understand that, that the veils of the nine kinds of distortions are factors to be eliminated. The lotus growing from the mud is pleasing to one's mind when it first appears, but later when it withers, it no longer pleases. The pleasure deriving from desire and attachment is like this. So the first one is about desire. The lotus, the, in, uh, the bees and the honey is uh, talking about aversion. When aversion arises, it brings pain to the heart. Kernels of rice and grains is talking about the shell being obscured by the shell of ignorance on the next page. Filth is disagreeable. And uh, those caught up in attachment to depend on their desires, these patterns resemble filth, the entire swamp. And then rich, when riches are concealed, 
is similar to when ordinary beings are obscured by habit patterns of ignorance. The gradual growth of a seedling is related to the removal of the factors to be eliminated, the path of seeing. And then for those who are engaged in the path of the advanced levels and have overcome their fundamental belief in the reality of the perishable aggregates, the affiliation of a sense of self with the skandhas, uh, there are factors to be eliminated through timeless awareness on the path of meditation. And this is analogous to the, uh, the tattered rags analogy, or this is demonstrated by that rather. The distortions affecting those on the first seven boomies are analogous to the defects of confinement in a womb, similar to delir deliverance from the confines of the womb is the full maturation of non-conceptual timeless awareness and the distortions associated with the three spiritual levels. The final three, uh, higher three, are understood to be like a covering of clay. There are factors to be conquered by the truly great state of Vajra-like meditative absorption. Tiny Vajra, finally demonstrating the heart of the nature, the nature of the heart. So what is the nature of this heart of spiritual of uh, essence of being. What is the nature of the heart essence? The nature of the heart essence of being, fundamental being, the very heart of enlightenment, which is spontaneously present in individuals, is called the nature of Dharmakaya. It's pure by nature and a perfect embodiment of the qualities of enlightenment. It's illustrated by three analogies the statue of the Buddha in the center of a lotus honey covered by bees, and a kernel of grain in its hull. It is called the nature of suchness from the perspective of the unchanging, uncompounded quality that indicates its presence within one, illustrated by the gold in the swamp. So another whole way of explaining the, the analogies as the, as the nature of the heart essence. And... Uh, so he, he goes through all the nine analogies and he says, <clears throat> just uh, this is how in the, uh, he's, he's quoting from the, uh, this later analysis of these nine analogies comes from the highest continuum, which says there, which uh, sort of sums up at the end, the nature is Dharmakaya, suchness and that spiritual potential is to be understood through three, one and five analogies, nine total these nine analogies. So these three aspects, dharmakaya, suchness, emptiness, and spiritual potential. In one's present situation in which distortions are still involved, the significance of one's fundamental being cannot be fully expressed by an analogy. So any analogy would have to apply to dharmakaya itself. Um, Any analogy would have to apply to Dharmakaya itself. That's a long application process, and not many are accepted. The acceptance rate is very small. So Dharmakaya transcends the transitory world. It cannot be portrayed by a mundane analogy. And so the fundamental being of the Shatagatas can only be pointed out by means of some approximation. We can't really come close with analogies to Dharmakaya, but... It's sort of in the in the right direction, let's say. The two aspects of Dharmakaya can be pointed out through approximation of the fundamental being, which is the cause of a process of disengagement 
along the path to enlightenment and self-knowing timeless awareness the very essence of buddhahood which is the result of that engage, disengagement along with these are two related aspects of the sacred dharma the scriptural and the experimental experiential Dharmakaya is understood to have two aspects, the utterly flawless basic space of phenomena in accordance with that, the causal aspect demonstrated by means of profound and myriad methods. This inconceivable nature of Dharmakaya is having an inactive or a passive nature and an active nature, or sort of a causal nature, but uh, you can't quite call it that. The causal aspect of Dharmakaya is omnipresent as the uh, commentary in the Uttaratansha says, the Dharmakaya that the Tathagatas permeates the realms of all beings without exception. From this joint standpoint, all of these beings are endowed with Buddha nature in the realms of ordinary beings. There is no one, no single being who falls outside the Dharmakaya of the Tathagatas. This is similar to the realms of forms being permeated by the realm of space. Everything is permeated by space, and so there's nobody that's outside of the Dharmakaya. Concerning this nature, which is without transition or change, even though it's causal, because the nature of being is unchanging, positive, <clears throat> completely pure, this suchness is described as being like gold. To speak of the nature of, uh, of being as spiritual potential is to refer to that nature from the standpoint of the qualities of enlightenment developing changing. The analogies of a treasure and a tree have been discussed already, and they apply here. Well, one is on the paths of accumulation and linkage, the first two. One has the firm conviction based on intellectual evaluation that fundamental being, the essence of ultimate reality, is definitely present within one. Other than that, one has no direct experience of it. So we're all going on this on intimation up until the path of seeing. So all of us are just going on sort of hearsay that we have spiritual potential. We don't need to know conclusively. We're still willing to practice and follow the path. From the first spiritual level, the first Bhumi onward, one has a partial perception of it, but on the level of Buddhahood, <clears throat> the nature of being is seen directly, having become fully evident just as it is. And uh, the analogy of the sun shining. Whereas those without eyes don't see it. Skipping the quote, therefore three kinds of spiritually advanced beings, shravakas and so forth, do not perceive the nature as it is. Even the spiritually advanced bodhisattvas are similar to small infants who see the sun only through a skylight. So even, even the highest bodhisattvas are like children compared to the Buddha. Uh, let's see. The commentary on the highest continuum which refers to a Buddha perceiving everything. And it gives the quote, skipping the quote on 171, given that ultimate truth is basic space. When one directly perceives the nature of basic space, of suchness, of ultimate truth, it is said that one perceives ultimate truth. Ultimate truth is not emptiness in the sense of a void. Concepts such as the non-existence of identity are taught as antidotes to the fixation on identity experienced by ordinary beings who are spiritually mature by beginning practitioners. Our main habit pattern is to, is to view things as being 
existent as being truly existent. So the the emphasis on the the uh, cultivation of understanding is on the emptiness aspect of reality. Um, but in actuality, one should understand basic space to be utterly lucid, uncompounded, and spontaneously present. The same commentary states, to summarize briefly, four kinds of individuals are considered to lack the vision to perceive Buddha, Buddha nature. And uh, Shravaka's Pratyeka Buddhas and Bodhisattvas only recently begun their training. As it said, this Buddha nature, the transcendent and accomplished conqueror, is not within the scope of those who err by regarding the perishable aggregates as real, who take great delight in erroneous ideas, or whose minds are completely distracted by emptiness. <laughs> completely distracted by emptiness. So that's a grad of time. We almost made it. I think we, should we end of, there? Say again? Yeah. yeah, I just think it's kind of funny that after all that, we're talking about Shravakas, particular Buddhas, that, that they're like falling short. <laughs> yeah, it's a high bar. Yeah. It's a very high bar. <laughs> I mean, any one of us would be thrilled to be a Shravaka Arhat, obviously. But such such emphasis on the on the uh preeminence of Buddhas over all these other beings just over and over again. And then how do you write that? <laughs> like how do you how do you say, okay, and I'm gonna write that because I don't know, because I'm not that high. I <laughs> well that's the contradiction, right? Gotta be able to handle the contradictions. Yeah, yeah. Well I think was Long Chenpa a Buddha? Or was he an, uh, a Prajeka Buddha or an Arhat? Or uh, is he a Bodhisattva? What level was he on? Well, he's definitely a Shravaka. Bodhisattva, maybe. But I don't know enough about him. I need more of his history. But yeah, he's not a Prajeka Buddha. We have to do a full evaluation. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you guys think about this uh, inexpressible, contradictory nature? Does it sound like theism? Does it make sense? Are you stumped? Well, without the contradiction, it is theism. I do. I see that. Yeah, you have to. You have to hold that contradiction, or yeah, it's basically just a belief. Yeah. So, so then, then think about. What other way could enlightenment be other than this? Could enlightenment be something that is created and generated and not present initially, but is brought about? But then it could be destroyed also, right? That is the logic. That's what they say. But if you make it really well, you know, you know build that wall really super strong, 
best wall ever. But then it's just a convincing argument. It's not fundamental. It's not. So how can it change then? How how can it be? How can it? How can there be a, the unenlightened state? And what? How can how can we go from unenlightenment to enlightenment? Well, I think I, I think if just to kind of like uh, maybe put a little spotlight on something that I think is interesting is when we talk about enlightenment, we're using one word to describe something that doesn't have bounds by definition. But it's also fascinating that I often hear when listening in or perhaps reading what others have written or hearing what others have written, um, people describe a state that they mistake as having permanence. Yet here we are in mistakenly saying we've never observed anything with permanence, yet why would we leap to the conclusion that something is permanent? Which, so therefore, are we mistaking the notion of an awakened mind, which is, uh, you know, said by certain, you know, uh, schools of thought to be the basis of the mind is to be the awakened mind with that of a permanent state of enlightenment and mistaking, the, mistaking them as necessarily the same which I, I, I feel like I'm hearing them sometimes compared as the same, which they may not be the same. And it could be that an awakened state of mind is not necessarily what others call a state of enlightenment. What would you call the awakened state of mind? I'd call it an awakened state of mind. A mind that's a mind that's listening. So, you, I mean, I think you can... I think for me, um, some interesting things that I believe I've heard other people call it, for example, in um, the letter of the Black Ashe, you could hear, let's say, Trunkba, you know, pointing to different qualities to try to describe something that's inscrutable, such as one who doesn't have their mind stolen away from them, which is really describing a meditative state or a meditative experience right? Because it's not a single thing, right? So I think at best we hear people trying to describe an experience that they have, which is very relative to themselves. And what's being pointed to is that, you know, this is a very basic sort of experience. But um, I think that's a very different, that's a very pragmatic perspective versus let's just say one that could be, if we're not careful, riddled in, 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 universal mystique that brings us to a place of um, extreme sort of uh, permanence where we solidify a state. I mean, uh, you know, also when you think about it, I mean, not to, I mean, I'll pause after this statement, but even, um, who was it? Uh, The Zen uh, Dog. um, Dog? Dog. Dogen. Dogen? Dogen. Okay. Yes. So, yeah, I was trying to re- recall his name. You know, his his I think I think he would perhaps share that perspective as well as perhaps there is no permanent state of enlightenment. But according to Dogen, it is a and, and, and other schools, perhaps as well. It is something that is experienced and generated uh, in the moment, if you will. Um, now, can you hold on to that permanently? And I think that's where the slippery slope is. Anyways, that's my, I guess, more than two cents, my 20 cents right there on it. So if I summarize that. 
order. Kind of be like fluctuations between realms of existence. Like you're constantly bouncing around, kind of like the Buddha over top the realms. He's like everywhere and nowhere at the same time. <laughs> everywhere and nowhere, I like that. Um, any other comments? on that or anything else relevant? Are, are people familiar with Dogen, famous Zen master from Japan? The author of the famous, uh, uh, what's it called, the uh, Genjo Koan or whatever is, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, Shobo yeah. Genzo Koan or whatever, very long, Beautiful text. And what about the letter of the black ashe? What is that, Noor? Tell everybody here what the letter of the black ashe is. Well, it's just, it's really just a poem, but you can also think of it as a pithy a pithy statement. Uh, you can think of it as Buddha Dharma, actually. I think that probably would be the most appropriate way to uh, describe it with the one word. It's Buddha Dharma. Who who wrote it? Uh, Chogyam Trumpa. Oh. He 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 wrote that text. Well, from the point of view of Terma, he received it. Thank you. Where can you find it? <laughs> not, not on Amazon, apparently. <laughs> Isn't it restricted? You have to take the levels. <laughs> on the level. You have to be on the spiritual levels. Anyway... It's something to quander about. Ponder, I mean, it's a quandary or a pondery. Ponder. <laughs> so I, I think uh, even your turkey has spiritual potential. So remember that as you enjoy your Thanksgiving dinners all alone in your apartments, being safe, not flying, not being stupid. Anyway, enough preaching. Dr. Fauci is not here with us tonight. Thank you, everyone. Thank uh, you. No other comments on the Buddha nature, huh? This contradictory, uh, double-sided, interesting thing. It's the Emily was going to say something, right? Emily kind of... She's gearing up for it. <laughs> think wow. Lori will give her a chance. Lori, what do you got? Well, I'm not seeing the contradiction. Oh, cool. Okay. Because it's not, it's, it's kind of like a dirty cop, right? <laughs> a dirty cop? A, a, no, not a dirty cop. <laughs> Movies about. Isn't it like a dirty a dirty cup, like a dirty coffee cup. Oh, oh, thank you. Okay. <laughs> Polish it. So when you, you know, the cup is the same, whether it's dirty or not. So when it's dirty, that's like the afflictive state. And when you clean, clean those away, you get to the cup, but the cup was always just the cup. And how did it get clean? How did you clean it away? What, what, 
what uh, occurred that made you clean the dirt away? Um, Is that you making those weird no- noises in the background? <laughs> my dog. <laughs> How many? I'm, of- I'm going into a trance right now. That's what that is. I'm. I'm kind of. Your chat. Yeah. <laughs> the the uh, woman, what is it called? The uh, the uh, uh, what about how many of you have your animals on your lap? Cynthia's got her cat. I see. Lori has her dog. Anyone else have anything? No uh, rabbits or. <clears throat> right. My snake, but it's downstairs. Nobody has a ferret. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, anything else? I just, the piece I keep coming back to, and I don't know if this will ever get answered for me, is like, where do the obscurations come from? That's the piece I can't, I can, I can like, everything else sits so nicely and I make little charts for myself. And then I just always have a big question mark pointing to like that moment where the obscurations appear. Yeah. Right. Where did they, where did they come from? Yeah, <laughs> ignorance. But where does ignorance come right. from? Right, and it, it seems like a, a snake eating its tail. Like if obscurations come from ignorance, but ignorance, yeah. So what is uh, what? Remember, he goes through a little scenario comparing it to the way Earth is supported supported by water and water yeah. air and air by space, but space is not supported. So he says that karma and kleshas are supported by what? By Unaw- unawareness. Human nature. That's what we said, ignorance, unawareness. Awareness. Wouldn't that be human nature, human beings, instead of Buddhas? And what does unawareness rest upon? Turtles all the way down. Desire? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, this was where I had this the question mark about obscurations. Yeah, so desire. Karma and afflictive states are based on fallacious functioning of mind. And yeah, so I wrote in the margin, like, how and why does that moment occur? What right. page are you on there? On 152 at the bottom. I forgot. There it is. Okay. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That. Fallacious functioning of mind is based entirely on purity of mind. Right. How could the purity of mind give rise to the fallacious functioning of mind. That's the piece I can't figure out. How can out. you have purity if you don't have impurity? Like what, how, how can you have one without the other? Like one sort of makes the other, it, I mean, it, I don't know. It sort gives of like, its meaning. Cold when it's relative to hot, like you can't. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. This implies, this just implies to me not that they, stand in relation to each other but that one actually grows out of the other and that's the piece i'm struggling with is that you have the pure state of mind and that like i even draw these little pictures of like things forming out of other things when i'm trying to sort these out and it's like what is causing that fallacious functioning of mind to form out of the or be supported by the purity of mind that's Dollar question: Where does where does delusion or ignorance come from? What gives yeah. to it? Derek, oh. that's okay. Have you checked that that's that there's no typos or errors in that section too in those lines? I'm not, but I've seen it in other places. Okay, 
because I've I've seen books where the word not was either in or left out, you know, and it actually changed the entire meaning of a line in a Dharma book. And it it was, you know, definitely an error. And so I just wanted to check if we know that for sure. I think that I'm at my assumption on what they meant there is simply the fact that that the underlying is the basic that basic pure ground and that that's what they mean not so much that causality but it's just that every, that's the base of everything kind of like the the ground like the alaya level or beyond you know what i mean rather than thinking that that's the causal mechanism but it's just sort of like that's the it's like everything sits in you know is in space right. yeah But wouldn't other spiritual traditions just rename that, reclassify that as uh, God or um, some other entity? Yeah, I mean, this space is ground. I I do start to get um, concerned (laughs) that we're we're just moving pieces around on the chessboard and uh the great chessboard of reality yeah i I, you know that's my ignorance but it's true that way but we part of it is that we have a tendency to make things out of you know yeah reify so this is where it gets dicey because that verification tendency. Right. Even with space, the notion of space, I have a tendency to want to see that as something. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. so. Cynthia, I mean, is your apartment like in the street or? <laughs> Mine? Yeah. Are you hearing noises? It's actually very quiet here now. <laughs> <laughs> but early I, 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 sirens I live too. on the corner of two streets um, and sometimes there is noise maybe it was Henrietta's streets I don't I do I have I live on an avenue that is a uh, an emergency <laughs> street but uh, there was nothing going here but I heard sirens too I yeah, too. there, there I might have been here. something passing by but yes Used to it, it didn't even phase her. Nope. <laughs> Just a, a rising from space and falling away. Yep. <laughs> All sound is mantra. Works works for everything except jackhammers. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> on that jackhammer, let us close with the uh, dedication of uh, marriage. This merit may all obtain admissions, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy ways of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the rigdens mist and bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy brilliant glory. Kiki Soso, have a great uh, Thanksgiving, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, you. Yeah, you do. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye, thank you. Analogy for 